I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. We are a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. And I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And this is a special edition of the Hanover House. I, I, you know, I always say it's a special edition of the Hanover House. It's not a special edition of the Hanover House. It's just the Hanover House, which is a special edition episode. So for those of you who don't know or don't listen to all of our stuff all that often, we typically have regular episodes every Wednesday with an interview of some sort, but we also have these monthly uh, sort of, I guess, almost roundtable sort of-ish discussions with uh, other guys at the London Lyceum. So today we've got Cody Float, we've got Connor McMakin, Jake Stone, and Garrett Walden with us. All of them are involved significantly with the London Lyceum. And if you don't listen to us all that often... I, one thing I always try to remind everybody at the beginning is that we're really striving after a couple of different intellectual virtues, and those are charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And I know many of you guys, you know these virtues, but, but some of you don't, so we always bring them up. And sometimes it's good to be reminded and to stir each other up to charity, to kindness, and this cheerful aspect of confessionalism, where confessions should make us excited and happy about what we have this good deposit that we've been given that we get to confess together. Now, this episode, what we're going to talk about is the John Gill Project. Don't tune out if you're not Baptist because this is exciting stuff, I promise you. I'm super pumped about the project, and I wanted to give you guys uh, just a little bit of an insight into what it is, why it's happening, why it's so important, why it's so cool, and then some, you know, maybe some interesting or funny nuggets about it. So I guess I'll start by just saying what it is, and that'll lay the groundwork, and then we can kind of discuss from there. So if you're not familiar with the John Gill Project, I want you to go on your phone or on your computer. You go to our website, thelondonlyceum.com. There's a resources tab. Under the resources tab, there's this thing called the John Gill Project. So you just click that, and you've got all the information about what the project is. So essentially, the project is us, the London Lyceum, the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies, and then H&E Publishing, we're working together uh, to republicize the work of John Gill for a new generation. And this includes republishing his works through H&E, as well as a special edition of our annual print journal uh, dedicated to the thought of John Gill. So if you want to think about Gill, you've got a place to do that. You can submit a paper. The deadline's November 1st of this year, I think. Uh, but the main idea is we just want to republicize Gill. We want to make him accessible. If you don't know who Gill is, we can talk a little bit about that in a second. But if you do know who Gill is, you'll realize quickly that access to his stuff is hard to come by. And if you find it, it's like the kind of stuff that you need a magnifying glass for. Uh, it's the kind of typesetting that looks like it was literally on a typewriter from 1850. It's not exactly ideal. It's big. It's heavy. And it's just, it's not great for church members. It's not great for a lot of pastors. It's not great for wide dissemination. So we just want to say, let's, let's reset, let's, let's reset the playing field and say, we want Gill in the hands of churches, of their pastors. We want it in the hands of the church members. We want to see churches being built up by the life and thought of John Gill, because we think that he brings something that can strengthen our churches. So that was the whole idea behind it. So uh, before we move on, who wants to take a stab at giving me a three-minute bio of Gill? I know Garrett can do this, and I know Jake can do this in their sleep. So I don't know if one of you guys wants to take off and do that, or if somebody else wants to well, take Jake it. Jake can't do it in three minutes, <laughs> so let's give it to Garrett. 
<laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> Glad to do it. Yeah. So John Gill is one of the uh, one of the heroes of the particular Baptist tradition, especially in the 18th century. He um, he was born in 1697. He dies in 1771. So he's kind of that generation after um, some of the um, the craziness that happens at the end of the of the 17th century with the act of toleration coming down in 1689. He's kind of born just about a decade after that. So basically he's a particular Baptist minister, mostly in London. He's born and raised in Kettering, the same place um, as John Bryan and where Andrew Fuller had his ministry for so long. And so um, he's, he was kind of a child prodigy of, <laughs> of, of intellect, even though he was not formally schooled the way that you might expect a uh, an intellectual child prodigy. Uh, so he has such a, just a fascinating uh, life and education. Um, he ultimately becomes the pastor of a church in London. Um, and it's the same church where Benjamin Keach had pastored. And so we all love Keach. Um, so along the way, um, John Gill finds himself called to the, to the, um, uh, to the Baptist church at Goatyard Chapel in Horsleydown. And Suffolk. Uh, so uh, later on, after Keach, um, along the way comes Gill. After Gill uh, comes a guy, John Rippon, who's, uh, again, one of the other unsung heroes of the particular Baptist denomination. He is an extraordinarily well-networked person. Uh, John Rippon really is a great person who you've probably not heard of. And then um, then on down the road, you get uh, you get Charles Spurgeon. And under Spurgeon's leadership that kind of moves locations and becomes the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Uh, that's kind of the, the big picture sketch of that. Um, Gil, like I said, dies in 1771. Um, along the way, he's um, a, a friend of uh, a bunch of people in London who are kind of a big deal. He's also kind of uh, a little bit prickly at times. Um, he gets kind of branded uh, as uh, a hyper-Calvinist in some in some in some sketches of the history, um, he is kind of in the uh, contemporary of George Whitfield and John Wesley. Um, he, he's just a really a, a pivotal figure at an important time. In terms of some of his writing, he's probably most well known for his uh, whole Bible commentary. He's the first Baptist person to write a commentary on every book of the Bible, every verse of the Bible. He's the first uh, Baptist ever to write somewhat of a, a full systematic theology, as, as we might know it. Uh, he calls it a body of doctrinal divinity, and there's kind of a companion volume that goes with it, a body of practical divinity, uh, which is just, it's beautiful, and that's really kind of what we're giving our attention to initially here in the John Gill Project. So um, just he's just a really extraordinary person, preached, obviously, for, for decades. Uh, lots of sermons and tracts still exist. Uh, he's just a, a really great uh, figure. And then intellectually, Richard Muller has called him the last of the great kind of post-Reformation scholastics. So he's he's uh, definitely, at least on my interpretation, he is in that same vein as kind of the, the post-Reformation scholastics. And uh, his structure of thought is very scholastic in his, in his theological method, which, again, is just a fascinating thing to think about uh, and not something you often associate with some of those early Baptist figures. So um, that's my that's my short version. Uh, there's so much more to say. I may ask if Jake would like to maybe supplement that with his own reflections. 
Jay, right. we know you have thoughts. Come on. Just give us a couple. Well, since I've been accused of being long-winded um, here th- this evening, I'll keep it pretty short. I think that John Gill is definitely probably the preeminent Baptist systematician in our history. I really think that even compared to the modern landscape, I would say that Gill towers above even what we see today. And that it's important not to lose sight that John Gill was a systematic theologian who was a pastor. And I think one of the greatest strengths that we have in the Baptist movement and in the Baptist tradition is that our theological convictions and distinctives were hammered out, not in the ivory tower, but in the pulpit and the pews, in the meeting houses of churches throughout England and America and elsewhere. So our tradition is not one of of an abstract or theoretical, but it is rooted in the everyday. And I, and I would say it's, it's, it's a blue collar mentality, but it doesn't mean that we uh, try to dumb it down or be shallow. These men were deep and they were rich, but they were also in the battleground, so to speak, week in and week out, shepherding the people of God. So the next thing I want to move to is just sort of the origins of the project and why we ultimately did it. So I think, if I remember correctly, the origin story is basically, um, you know, we've got a Slack channel where we just kind of message each other, and we kind of talk back and forth about random stuff. And I'm, I think this was actually my idea. I can't remember if it was. Um, where I'm just like, hey, why don't we? What if we republished Gill? And I'm pretty sure I just emailed Chance and was like, what, like, what does this even look like? Uh, because. I think me and a lot of other people realize, you know, I, I look at my shelf on who I've got on my shelf for systematic theologies. I've got Herman Bavink. I've got Francis Turretin. I've got all these guys. I'm like, Gill, everybody, who, every Baptist historian knows Gill's one of the, our best, if not the best, uh, systematic theologian that we've had. And why is his systematic theology not uh, widely available as and accessible? And I thought, you know, that seems weird. What, 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 what would it take to actually make that available? So I email H&E and Michael Hagan gets involved with the Andrew Fuller Center and it takes off. So from there, we have a ton of meetings and discussions about what the project's going to look like, how it's going to take shape. And so it really morphed from just this random, totally just left field idea to something, wow, this is actually something we really should pursue. And everybody sort of agreed with it. So I don't, I, I don't like to say, you know, claim that this is what the Lord has planned, all those sort of things, because you don't know what the Lord is actually doing. But like everybody kind of got on the same page really quickly and got really excited about it. So I can't help but think this is really exciting. And I do believe it's going to strengthen churches. So, um, I mean, I can't imagine what else it would be, but I, I'm pumped about where it's going. So why that's kind of why we did it. We I look at my shelf. Where's Gil? He's important. What happened? And I email, and it sort of takes off from there. So as far as hopes and dreams with the project, I mean, when you think about the John Gill Project yourself, what comes to your mind? What, what do you think is beneficial to you? What do you think is beneficial to your church? What do you think is beneficial to the Universal Church or Baptist in particular? Um, any thoughts on that? I mean, Cody, Connor, Brandon? Yeah, I think what excites me is, especially with this first kind of round with the abridged version of um, 
kind of body of divinity and practical divinity. Um, yeah, like what I'm really excited about is that we're seeking to create something that is particularly accessible for pastors and lay people. Um, so while we may very well one day, you know, work to get the entire thing published, right? That's not, you know, a 1000 page work is not nearly as accessible for um, even pastors as something that we can abridge that but gets the essence of what Gill is putting forth in every loci of theology. Um, like, yeah, getting that in a very consumable form for the people whom, frankly, it ought to benefit the most. And so um, that's what I'm really excited about and what I pray and hope would be a great blessing. Um, yeah, project. that's good. Because, I mean, you think about if if I gave you all three volumes, which I hope I hope we'll be able to do that towards the end of the project, have all three unabridged volumes so you can have the full set together. Um, if you did that, though, to your church members, 95% of your church members are not going to join that book study and are not going to read that whole material. If you give them one, you know, it, our goal is around 80,000 words, one volume abridged that's covering pretty much everything that he does. I think that's doable for your church and can really benefit them. It can introduce them to solid theology. It can introduce them to a lot of areas that they're not uh, used to stretching. I mean, you've got a lot of people in your church, a wide range of theological spectrum, things they know, things they don't know, um, and just levels of just knowledge in general. And I think this sort of initial abridged version is a really nice niche fit for that segment uh, of people to really benefit them. Uh, Brandon, Connor, any thoughts? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it, it reminds me of a, a conversation I had with one of my professors at Southern Seminary a few years ago, a few years ago. Yeah. And I remember asking him, you know, why is there so many reformed or Presbyterian guys published? I mean, and it's not just recently, but it's historically, uh, but it seems like all of our textbooks are, are even, uh, from these guys. And, <clears throat> and he, he kind of made a quick joke about, well, we were too busy evangelizing the lost around the world. Um, you know, that, that central, um, effort of, of the Baptist Missionary Society and, and all that and all those, all those things. That's somewhat of a, an exaggeration maybe, but there, I think there is some truth in that. And, you know, I've even asked this, especially if you narrow it down from a broad Baptist perspective to like the narrow particular Baptist perspective, like who's, who's our systematic guy, right? And um, who's, who's put out a systematic or biblical theologies that we could all just say, hey, this is kind of a go-to. And, you know, the, the more I'm reading Gill, the more I, I'm confident to say, um, like, yeah, this is a resource that um, once finished and and, and once, uh, um, as Cody put it, you know, put, put in an accessible um, format, I, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be gold. I mean, I'm, I've been benefiting from it. There's a section I've been working through about the session of Christ and and what does it mean that the the God man sits at the right hand of the Father who is spirit, right? And it's um you know, so there's there's the two person there's the two natures in that one person there. And it's just a really interesting uh, way that he articulates it. And I won't, you know, review it because sake of time and people will just need to get it for themselves. But I mean that's 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 good stuff. And and I think uh, the the sections that you guys are 
are, are looking at and, and others are working on. Um, it's just going to be a delightful, um, a delight to read and, and a delight to add to your to your toolbox as a as a minister of the gospel. So, yeah, something that uh, that Connor said there made me think about something that I've thought about before. Um, with the particular Baptist tradition, you know, I think we've uh, in a lot of different areas we've we've punched above our weight. Uh, maybe to put it that way, uh, it's just particular Baptists are not the, you know, the biggest group in the world, but you know, we, we can claim Spurgeon, you know, one of the greatest preachers of all time. We have Bunyan, although that's a little bit more controversial, whether he can be labeled a Baptist, but, um, you know, with Pilgrim's Progress, William Carey, the father of modern missions. And I think kind of the, the missing piece in that is, well, where's our, our uh, our theologian and I think Gill. Um, once he becomes accessible to people, um, they're going to see that we have that uh, as well. So yeah, that's a wonderful because I was I've been thinking recently like <clears throat> who I, I think about my church like when we send people to read accessible abridged systematics in Baptist circles like what do we often turn them to? It's probably Grudem's Bible Doctrine, which like. In my mind, I'm just like, why would we not want and desire a an actually confessionally Baptist, um, like kind of like yeah, like systematic work that is accessible for lay people? Like, why wouldn't we want that? And why, yeah, and why shouldn't we work for that? And that's what thrills me about this project is like, yeah, by the Lord's grace, like able to do that, and hopefully this will become like that accessible work um, for lay people that we, and can particularly confessionally Baptist. So I think Gil would greatly benefit wide swaths of the Christian tradition, whether it be on doctrine of God, doctrine of scripture, etc. He's so helpful. And, um, but particularly thinking about confessionally Baptist churches. Um, I think it's, really sad that we haven't had that for so long and now um hopefully we're able to bring a little bit of that so yeah i mean we've got if you look at the website there's this awesome quote from martin lloyd jones where he says uh, or he's thinking about gill as a man not only of great importance in his own century but a man who is still of great importance to all of us and i think that's still true today I, i can't think of another baptist that is I mean, he's he did so many. He's got his commentary on the whole Bible. He's got all of his sermons, and then this huge systematic theology. And what I like about it is that it's personally is it's more scholastic in nature. So I I'm sort of a philosopher. I like that sort of thing. So it, it definitely attracts me to have someone have that sort of methodology in our Baptist tradition. So I I really like Gill just from that standpoint. I think he's helpful. Um, in a whole host of ways. So I'm just really excited about the whole thing. I'll get, I mean, initially we were like one volume and then it just kind of ballooned to where we think this project is really going to help people. So let's go ahead and shoot for like 20 volumes. So right now that is the goal and it's going to have a mixture of things. So some of them will be small, short little volumes, take Gil's stuff on spirituality. You can take out some stuff on just so you think, I don't know, topics like love and faithfulness and kindness sort of things, where it'd be like a short 50-page book 
that's really consumable for your church members and have those available. And then you'll have ones that would be bigger. So I plan to do one on the divine attributes. So having his whole section on the divine attributes as either a, a single volume or two volumes where you can just go reach for that and you have Gill on divine attributes. And that's really accessible. So, and uh, for especially current discussions, as well as just for your own preaching and a little, all those things to have Gill, uh, classically Orthodox, Reformed, Baptist guy available to you in that format. And our first, this first one, we plan to have it out in January 2023, Lord willing, um, if that all works out. We've got other, I guess, what's the other one? So we've got mod, a modernized cause of God and truth. I mean, I think that's been, I mean, Haken was pretty bullish on that, as well as a lot of people have said, I want that. So I'm excited to see all these volumes come out. I think it's really going to benefit people. And like I said, I think earlier today is one of the reasons that people are influential in the long term is not because they're the smartest, it's because they get the publicity. So oftentimes our best theologians, we don't even know that they're there. I, I was thinking about Herman Bobbink. He's one of my favorites now, probably my favorite. And I didn't know who he was 10 years ago. I didn't have access to any of his stuff. And now I've got access to all of his dogmatics, his ethics, all these things. He's benefiting me. Um, and that was only made accessible because people worked to make it accessible. They translated his stuff and, and put it in print. Same thing with Gill. People don't have access to a lot of this stuff. And so that's the whole point is to make it accessible because Gill is one of our best in the Baptist tradition. And we want to highlight him. I think other Reformed guys will find Gill extremely helpful. We'll turn to him. I, I mean, I turn to Presbyterians all the time. I would hope that Presbyterians would want to turn to this Baptist and say, this guy can really help me think about all these things that differ on ecclesiology, but everything else is is gold. So I'm pumped about overall with everything that's going on. I'll tell you a little bit about how to support and why we need support. So when it comes to book publishing, if you're a big publisher, you got lots of money in the bank, you can kind of upfront pay the cost to do all the copy editing, to do all the, the proofreading, to do all the formatting and to, to print it in bulk and to ship it to dis distributors. You can do that. Small publishers like H&E, they don't have a huge bank account. They are legitimately a ministry. They're not there to make money. They're not there to profit. They're there to provide good, faithful resources to churches. That is their point. That is the purpose. Um, so with that in mind, they don't have a bunch of money where they can front costs on big projects like this. So in order for to make this project reality, we need support in order to fund it. So on average, it's going to cost if if it's like an 80,000 word volume, it's going to cost around four to $5,000 to get everything done. That's copy editing, proofreading. That's the layout design, all the stuff that goes in to creating a book and making it a reality. That's how much it's going to cost. So we just need your support in that. So that can be you personally. If you want to give 20 bucks, 50 bucks, $100, whatever, however, whatever the Lord leads you to do, how much, however many, how much means you have, um, That'd be a huge blessing. If you want to take this to your church, which I recommend you do because I think it's going to be benefit churches, I we have a support letter we can give you. So if you need a support letter, an official one, you've got Michael Haken's name on there. Uh, you've got H&E Publishing on there. You've got us. Uh, we can give that to you. It's on letterhead, all that fancy stuff, and explains the Gill project, and you can provide that to them and pitch it to them. Say, let's 
take part of our budget and support this project because we think it's going to be really beneficial to to our churches. And and we've got it set up. H and E is good with doing this. So if you donate a hundred dollars, you'll get the initial volume. We'll send it to you once it's ready. If you donate a thousand dollars, then you'll get the whole set of twenty volumes or whatever it ends up being. So. I think we, I mean, we need the support in order to make it happen because we can't do all the volumes without the support. And if you want to support, you can go to our website, again, the LondonLyceum.com, go to the John Gill Project, and at the bottom, there's a nice little nifty thing that you can click how much you want to give, and you fill in the details, and boom, done. Probably takes you less than five minutes, and it's it's all there. So I think it's it's pretty nifty, and that'll answer all the questions that I think that you have. Um so at this point, I mean, what have you guys found that's both either fun or really annoying about transcribing John Gill? Because I don't think most people think through all the stuff that you have to do to make this a reality, but you actually have to pull up Gill and you actually have to take it in <laughs> and go through it, Methodic, especially the abridged version. You're having to make the decisions on what to include and what not to include. So what, what have you, it could be fun, could be annoying, could be whatever. I I think for me, uh, it was just kind of just as a general statement, um, a little overwhelming to think that I am, uh, you know, taking someone's words, you know, from, from 300 years ago, somebody who's, you know, 50 times smarter than I am, you know, and it's my job to decide, you know, what, what stays, what goes, or if I have to, you know, edit one of his sentences or a lot of his sentences to make them readable to a modern uh, to a modern English reader, like it's, it really is just overwhelming to think, I mean, it's a huge responsibility because you want to, um, you want to make it readable or it's, or the project is essentially worthless. Um, but you also, you know, you don't, you don't want to be too heavy handed and then lose the essence of what he's trying to communicate. So, um, yeah, it was, so it was stressful. Uh, but it was, I learned a lot just from, from reading, uh, his stuff, but it was definitely stressful. I would say one thing for me that I found uh, maybe annoying, but at least in the sections that I've been working on, um, he tends to quote guys that I don't think have been republished ever. So like, just like there are some, some things he, he's quoted throughout his works that even, you know, the grand overlord Google could not find for me. So it's, that's been kind of funny to like read through and just, he's quoting all these Latin guys and kind of guys who may have, yeah, published initially and, you know, it's like 400 AD and Gil f- finds it somehow and it's never been republished. And, um, here I am trying to track that down. So that's been, um, that's been both fun and annoying to a little bit of an extent, Kind of similar to what Brandon was saying, one of the things that I've had a hard time discerning on the abridgment is what sorts of things, like when you when you're reading over what he says, and you're like okay, this is a really good point and like really powerful or meaningful. There's other stuff that you're like, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, I'm sure that it makes sense, but it doesn't really hit me like some of the other stuff did. I'm I'm I've been kind of worried that if I take this out, am I pulling like a, is this like a jenga tower and this is like one of those one of those blocks that doesn't it's not supposed to move and this whole thing's going to come crashing down so you're having to make some editorial decisions about about that and so like i've had to like remove like almost a whole paragraph and i'm like i hope this doesn't come back to bite me i don't think it does 
But maybe in his context, this really was like an, a crucial point that could not be left out, and I just removed it. So it is a little bit stressful in that way. Also, again, you're reformatting his sentences, and I really hope I'm, you know, identifying the correct antecedent for his pronoun. And um, when he assumes the subject again, as he continues on for, you know, these 10 to 15 line sentences, like I'm trying to restate the subject and make sure that this whole thing flows. I hope, I hope I'm getting it right. And you read and reread and reread, and I'm pretty sure that this is right. Um, so yeah, it, it's been, it's been good. I will say it has also been good for me. It's been a little bit humbling for me. I think at times guys like us, we can talk a bigger game than we can back up in terms of our, historical knowledge or theological knowledge. It's been helpful for me to like read him in his own words. I mean, like I'm focused on 18th century Baptist studies for doctoral studies, but still I'm reading things in Gill. I'm like, wow, I don't think I'd realize that he believed that or that he thought that. And I'm glad I'm reading this for my own, with my own eyes. It, it has been humbling. I, I I haven't understood Gill as well as I thought I did. And I, maybe I, it's easy to talk as if we, we understand him better than we actually do. So I think reading him this closely and carefully and consistently has been really helpful for me to realize that my initial skim through Gill doesn't make me a, a Gill expert and it really takes a close, a close read. So anyway, it's been, it's been humbling for me. Yeah, Garrett, you, you, <laughs> you hit on a frustration that I've had. I, I, it's like there periods were not invented until after John Gill, apparently, because these sentences are, uh, you know, the semicolons and the colons. And it's like, you're trying to, um, he'll, he'll, he'll almost like talk about a certain, a specific subcategory subtopic, and then almost change it in the next clause and then come back to it later on in the paragraph. But yet it's all in the same, I'm using scare quotes sentence. And so it, you I've I've found it's taking longer than I would have um, expected to to read a section and then reread it and then reread it and almost like it's almost like a puzzle you're doing it and it's like I, I guess in in the 18th century this made sense to people how how he was arguing and 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 the the order of his argument and the order of his his logic but yeah it's to to, to us right now it's it's in some in some places it's a jumbled mess now there's beauty to it and and that's something that I'm trying to remind myself this this there's beauty to this and we have to basically just take that beauty and make sure that people in our generation can can appreciate it and enjoy it and and sort of like pulling away all of the the grammat- the grammatical stuff that that may have been custom then that would just be cumbersome now so one thing that I've been encouraged by reading through Gill is um, he's clear. He was clearly such a well-read man. Um, like looking through, yeah, the sections that I'm doing, he's quoting from a wide range of people from theologians to philosophers like Aristotle and others. He's like drawing upon that. And, um, you know, and we're living kind of in a moment where there is a lot of debate around what we can retrieve and how to do that. And I think Gill is a really good model for how to rightly retrieve what is um, good and right, um, even from those like Aristotle, um, and to do so in a way that's faithful to the scriptures. 
Um, like I'm, I'm working on his chapter on the scriptures and he does a lot of that. And it's been really encouraging and helpful to see as like this, to be able to point to and say, this is a good example of a faithful man who is drawing from as much as he can draw from for the sake of um, building up the church. So good stuff. So Jake, I, what I need from you now is give me your mini sermon on why Baptists matter and why it, it's important to retrieve Baptist thought, not just for Baptists, but for everybody. I mean, we, we've got a lot of people who listen, Anglicans, we've got Presbyterians, we've got Wesleyans who listen. Why is it they should care about Baptists like John Gill? I'm very tempted to give a landmark answer, but I will refrain from doing so. I will say that whether you agree with the Baptist tradition whether you consider yourself a Baptist or not, the truth is that we are, I, I believe, the largest Protestant denomination, using those terms loosely. And so that means that we have a very significant influence in the Christian tradition. And as has been said earlier, there are a lot of significant contributions that the Baptist movement has made to Christianity. And so I would say that if, and I'll add this too, I think there's a lot of caricatures that are, that people have of Baptist and what it means. I think for some people that they, they hear the word Baptist and they just think about a uh, hillbillies, you know, eating fried chicken and drinking sweet tea. And that's all there is to us. Um, now those are good things I would add, but we're more than that. And I think that someone like John Gill represents in many ways the essence of who we are as Baptists, that we do take this rich, wonderful theology of what it is that it means to be Christians and what we confess and what we have confessed throughout the centuries, and then how does that fit into the context of the local church how we bring the gospel to the nations and to our neighbor. And I think that for anybody who wants to see a great example of bringing all these things together, theology in the pulpit, in the pastorate, I think Gill is a great example. Now, that would be my, my, my speech to the broader uh, Christian world. For us as Baptists, we, we've got to get with the program. Um, we've allowed so many things to distract us, to entangle us. We've gotten so consumed over the years. I think back to what uh, Timothy George said in that great essay in Baptist Theologians. If you've never read it, you should just go buy the book for that essay. And even Al Mohler in his inaugural convocation at Southern here in 1993 they gave the warning about Baptists being nothing but the world's most famous pragmatist. And those men wrote those things 30 years ago, and or said those things 30 years ago. And I fear that it's still true, because we have not done a very good job of digging into the roots of our own tradition. Our people should know who, not just who John Gill is, but who Abraham Booth is. Uh, who Charles Octavius Booth is, who Isaac Bacchus is, and we could keep going on and on down the list. And, you know, Garrett stole my thunder earlier this morning in another 
podcast. So now I'll get to say the line, stealing it from Michael Haken. But look, if we don't tell our story, nobody will. And if we don't teach our theology, and if we don't teach our distinctives, then who will? I'll tell you who, people who don't know what we actually believe. And so they will misinform and misteach. And so we have a duty and a responsibility. We used to think that. You know, I find it fascinating that you can go back to the 19th century and read men like John Broadus and John Dagg, who said, we have a duty and an obligation to teach Baptist distinctives. Broadus said, not just in our own churches, but to those who are outside the Baptist tradition. So we need, to, we need to do a better job. And frankly, we've told a lot of people that just being a Baptist means you can believe whatever you want to believe. Well, that's hogwash. That's not what it means to be a Baptist. So I think that we have a great opportunity. We have been entrusted with something, and we need to do it well. Anything else when we think about John Gill Project? that we want to mention here? I mean, we've mentioned what it is, why it's important, why we think Gil is a a great person to retrieve that we want to bring to our churches and really bring to our seminaries too. I mean, instead of having to have just John Frame and Wayne Grudem at your Southern Baptist Seminary, you can actually have John Gill with you. I think that would serve people better. I'll say that. What, What is there anything else that we find valuable in this? Brandon, you were going to say something. Well, I was just going to say, I know some people have reservations about Gill because of his uh, reputation as a hyper-Calvinist, at least according to some. And um, I I think there's been some kind of, uh, at least, I don't know, I think there's been a bit of concern that maybe uh, we're going to whitewash Gill and and not, uh, you know, present him as he truly is. But I I believe uh, at least Dr. Haken, who is one of the primary leaders on the project um, does believe that Gill was a hyper-Calvinist. So, you know, our interest here is not to present Gill um, in some romanticized way that we've conjured up, you know, on our own. We want to present him as he is uh, in his own words. Um, so we don't we don't think he was a, a perfect theologian or, or, or anything like that, but we do think um, – he has set the standard for Baptists. So um, even even though there may be error in his theology, uh, it's it's worth retrieving. Uh, so I just thought I'd throw that out there. Yeah, that's a good word. Which reminds me, uh, when you mentioned Haken, him and Jonathan Swan are going to be doing the introduction to this abridged material. And we plan to have introductions to all of them, uh, new ones from Gill scholars like Haken and Swan. So I'm excited about that. I think that'll make the material that much more beneficial to have experts like that uh, providing a sort of roadmap to the material and giving some new insights into it. So all that to say, I am super excited about this project and we need your support. So if I really think about it, pray about it, decide, hey, I want to support this or I want to go bring this to my church and see if they'd be willing to support it. We need you guys to make this happen. We're not making money from this. It's not like, you know, I'm going to be rolling cash or something from this. We we don't have Elon Musk. or who Who is the guy who's supposed to fund Big Eva? What's his name? Soros. Soros. Is that it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Don't We don't have him helping us out here like the Gospel Coalition. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, 
We're not that <laughs> Take out. that out. Oh, man. <laughs> Take that out. Yeah, so we're not making money. The, the point is, this is not a money-making machine. We, we need your support to be able to make it happen, and we believe in it, and that's why we're doing it. So we're all putting in all, all these hours to transcribe it, to, to edit it, to make it to be as beneficial as possible for you and your church and hopefully for the seminaries as well. And we just want to do that because we, we believe in it and we believe in our Baptist history as being useful for the present. Uh, a lot of the resources um, that we need today are located 200, 300, 400, 500, 600, 700, 800 years ago. And we need to look back there and we'll find the answers to the problems that we're facing today right there. And it kind of transports us to another place, another time, and it can jog our, our, I mean, I guess jostle our preconceived notions of of the solutions that we have here and realize that there's a lot of stuff that can help guide us in the present. Just curious, can you think of anyone who who was uh, writing about 800 years ago who may be worth retrieving? Anybody off the top of your head? (laughs) Well, let's see here. What's 800 years ago? Mm, Bonaventure. Uh... (laughs) Definitely not Thomas Aquinas. He's off. He's Uh-oh, off limits. There it is. It's all in the trail of blood. <laughs> well, there you have it. Jake just said Thomas Aquinas is a proto-reformer, Amen. a Baptist. He's a Baptist now for sure. <laughs> okay, it's time to pull the plug. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. All right. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. I really think this is going to help you guys out, and we really thank you for your support in it. So even if you don't give, sharing it with other people, that would help the project move forward so that others who have the means can assist us with it. We'd really, really appreciate it. And thanks for tuning in, as always, to the only analytic Baptist confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.